So, questions, thoughts on this morning's passage? I Go for it. I was uh, struck, reminded again. Microphone, microphone, microphone. If I have my chronology uh, correct, Jesus talks about having food that the disciples didn't know about. He had already experienced that in his temptation. Yes. Um, In both Matthew and Luke, where it records that, it says he had fasted 40 days, and then it said afterwards he was hungry. (laughs) Right. I, I, I'm always struck by that. Hmm. Um, that uh, um, I think it also uh, underscores that, this passage underscores that when he talks about the harvest. What do you get when you harvest? You food. food. Yeah. Well, uh, well, let me go a step further. Because this is in part where spiritual disciplines can be helpful. After fasting for 40 days, being hungry for a morning has got to be a little easier. In other words, his, you're, you're quite right. So Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, we know from Mark, is immediately after the baptism. We know the baptisms happen because John the Baptist references it. And we know the first miracle Jesus does is at Canaan and Galilee. So I would take Jesus' return to the John the Baptist camp as basically the first thing he does after the 40 days of temptation. So, yeah, that's just, that's just in the rearview mirror. He's fasted 40 days, was tempted by the devil. That also, as you harmonize, put this together, might explain in part how he's able to be hungry for half a day and still be focused because he's disciplining himself regularly um, in things like that, which is something Christians have testified to over the course of the last 2,000 years, the value of spiritual disciplines to prepare you for things. So you want to go any further with that? Oh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, amen. So amen. the microphone men have all the questions this morning. Awesome. Okay, um, microphone. Microphone. Take yeah, it away, microphone man. I got two. The one's okay. kind of a silly, silly okay. question. I'm going to ask it anyway. Where are you going to get gas that they pump it? <laughs> anyway, you talk to my mother. <laughs> okay. Uh, I guess I was like, wow, where's he going to get gas? No, my Um, mother, my mother will just wait for some nice looking, generally like old man or something. Oh, nice. Excuse me. If, if she doesn't, what, what mother? Oh, the younger, the better. Okay. There you go. There There we have it. (laughs) Sorry. The the second question I have though, uh, along those lines with your point you were making, um, Are there some other places in Scripture where we can draw encouragement from the idea that evangelism witnessing is going to be catered to the individual? I think for me growing up in church, heard the Romans road. Mm. I said it on plenty of trainings. It felt like growing up that, hey, here's the eight passages you need to have memorized. So for those of us that, as you say, become distracted very easily. Yeah. What what hope, what rest, what encouragement can we take from other places in Scripture that sure. the Lord will provide those words when the time comes? 
So in, in general, those, those tools, four truths, two passages, one question, it's all in an effort to give people some sort of framework that when they're nervous, when they're flustered, when they're caught unprepared, they got something. And to that degree, they're, they're useful, they're helpful. Um, the downside of that is if you learn how to share the gospel one way and one way only, and that's your one and magic only way to do it, that's not helpful. So I, I think it's great. I mean, Ray Comfort's got his approach, the way of the master, that approach. Um, there's the uh, four spiritual truths, and you know, and there's ministry down in Australia with two questions. And, you know, and, yeah, two ways to live, yeah. And those are all really helpful and good. And if that gets you from inactivity of doing anything to something, awesome. <laughs> but there really isn't a one-size-fits-all way of, of speaking to people. Um, where's, where's the passage, seasoning your words with salt? Is that Peter? Here, let's turn to let me, Colossians. Is it Colossians? Oh, all right. Let's go to Colossians 4, microphone man. All right. Um, Colossians... Yeah. Six. Well, five and six, right? Um, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You don't answer everybody the same, right? So in Proverbs, you get, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest, lest you be like him. And then immediately following that, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Which means there are times, it's wisdom to know, is this one of the times somebody's saying something foolish and I should just ignore it and keep going on? Or is this one of those times where showing them the folly of what they're saying is appropriate? There's not a one, what do you do when a fool spouse folly? Well, there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer, right? I mean... Solomon, whoever organized the Proverbs, is not so stupid as to put two contradictory Proverbs back to back. I mean, the people are like, those are contradictions. No, it's not. Come on. No one's that dumb. We have to be exceptionally stupid to do that. No, it's clearly juxtaposing, juxtaposing in wisdom literature. There's a time for this. There's a time for this. And the implied question then is, do you know what it's proper time for? Um, so knowing how to answer people, seeing Jesus interact with Nicodemus and, and go very strong and firm and challenging as he think of like a fishing metaphor, you let the, you know, the fish is trying to run. So you give it some line, but then you pull it back in. Like, I, I kind of think that's more what's going on with the woman at the well. And then you're going to see him in five straight up, pick a fight with the Pharisees. I mean, straight up, pick a fight. Uh, we'll, we'll deal with that. And so Jesus knows how to answer everybody. And it's not a one size fits all. Here's what you say. It takes some wisdom and being alert. So as regards to evangelism, I'd encourage you, if you've got no means, if you, if you quick, here's a test. You had to explain the gospel, talk someone through spiritual truth. Now, if you got something, even if it's my Romans road, fantastic. If that makes the difference between doing nothing and saying something, that's awesome. Better still is getting familiar enough with the content that you can then actually have more than one tool in your tool bag. So if all you got is a wrench in your tool bag, great. Even if you have to use the wrench like a hammer, you can probably drive a nail sort of okay. No, you ever, I've done that, right? right okay. Um, better yet if you got a hammer and a wrench. And, better, and so if you've got differing tools and different approaches and different things and learn from, watch, observe other people, you're going to have more and more tools in your box. Um, but all I'd get from this passage this morning is just being alert and being ready and being on mission and being, that's, that's a trendy phrase, on mission, but 
I'll use, I, I hesitated to use the sports analogy, having your head in the game, but being alert for the things around you. That's the thing that most convicted me about this. The disciples were oblivious. I mean, Jesus, one of the things, I didn't make a huge point of this in John, in John 4. Go back to John 4. Um, so using the chronology of the Gospels, the only ministry the disciples have had so far is in baptizing with Jesus um, in, the, in the Judean wilderness area, went out into the countryside. Jesus is baptizing. So when Jesus says to them in verse 38, I sent you to reap for that for which others did not labor, when exactly did Jesus send them anywhere? When did Jesus send them anywhere? He sent them to get food. No, anywhere. This is long before the sending of the 70. This is long before the two-by-twos. The only antecedent is he sent them into Sychar to get food. I mean, it doesn't say he sent them. It says the disciples had gone in, but Jesus is the leader. I think it's a fair implication he sent them in. So I don't want to read too much into that, but is Jesus saying, I had hoped you would have seen opportunities for ministry in Sychar? I mean, it's hugely ironic, I think, that the very people that they were hobnobbing with, buying food, bartering with, are the very people coming to them they're going to minister to. Like, oh, hey, I saw you 20 minutes ago, type of thing. And even now, as they're coming towards Jesus, the disciples still don't see these people as, as, a, as a ministry, for op- an opportunity for ministry. I mean, this is actually like a, har- a field on legs coming towards you. Like, I sent you to the field, you didn't see it, so now the field's coming to you, right? I think it's amazing. I think that's part of what's going on is these people just don't have their head in the game and they, they're ready. They're probably viewing when we get to Galilee, we're going to get ready for some ministry and there's an opportunity right here, right now. And they, they didn't see it. Yeah. Yes. Maybe. <laughs> you and Alex and I can talk afterwards. Alex and I have been talking about that. Sorry. That's why I grinned at Alex. Yes. Yes, Pristina needs a microphone. Oh, sorry. Then, sorry, Don. I'm letting Pristina okay. cut in front That's of you. That's okay. okay. Um, and I wasn't in here all the time, so I don't know if anybody said anything about what I'm going to say. <clears throat> but the scripture you read about, um, it doesn't matter if we sow the seed or if we water the seed. It's all the same. It's the same labor, yes. But I'm sitting here thinking... If anybody witnessed to me before I got saved at 30, age 39, I don't remember it. So there might be somebody at age 39 that hasn't heard, and it might be the seed instead of right. the watering. No, no, that, that's no, entirely right. For some people, in my case, I think seeds planted in my, when I was five, six, seven, took 20, 22 years to sprout as well as other watering from other people. Um, there may well be people who they hear the gospel once, bam! That's what I mean, the, the, that one person did sowing and reaping all in one. I mean, it's not that it has to be broken down into 82 steps. The point is, at a macro level, the taking in of the harvest is a group effort. The taking in of the harvest, all sorts of people have all sorts of roles. And you're, you're and no one gets, we, we ought to view ourselves, but Jesus will point in that last verse is, you are entering into the labors of other people. You're going to be reaping. Some of what you're going to be doing is reaping what you didn't plant. And some of what you're going to do 
by implications, you're going to plant what others are going to reap. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Rather than being territorial, these are my, this is my section of the garden, and I'm doing all the watering in this section, I'm doing all the reaping in this section. Like, no, the whole nature of the endeavor is that we're coordinating, working together. But we don't reap. Well, no, we might. He tells them they're going to reap. Some, some reap what others have planted. So in and the I thought analogy, it was the Holy Spirit that did that. Yeah, in the analogy, in the analogy, the reaping would be bringing gospelizing, bringing them to faith. The Holy Spirit's doing that. It's Paul's point in uh, Corinthians. One man waters, one man plants, God makes it grow. The growth is accredited to God. The planting and the watering are accredited to the, are to the laborers. So, um, you know, Joel preaches, knocks on someone's door, gives them the gospel, and the Holy Spirit waits six years and then begins to tug at that person's heart and convict them. And someone else is at the church when that person comes in and says, hey, I want to talk, and they get to lead them to faith. Like, one man watered, one man planted, God gave the growth, one person harvested, but another person gave. The main point is, it's going to be quite often, and part of the program, that we're building on other people's foundations. You know, like I said, it's rare that you get somebody from zero to set Christ all in one thing. More often, I talk to people that they, they went to Awana, they got some truth there, they grew up in a Christian home here, they went to church another time. There's all sorts of influences of, of things. And I, and, and I also means I got to be content if I don't get to see the harvest come in. Okay, then I was the 15th watering. So awesome. then yeah. the Holy Spirit works through us yes. for the reaping and yes. not us. Yes. But I, I was just sitting here thinking, everybody's story is different. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be really neat to hear everybody's story and how they got saved. You know what I'm saying? Because mm -hmm. we all got saved in a different way and yeah. heard a different message and yeah. stuff. So, yeah. yeah, okay. And there's not always someone to reap. I mean, sometimes someone sows and the Spirit brings the person in all entirely. I mean, you, you know what I mean? But, but Jesus is speaking from the point of view of the laborers. They should seek to reap. And they should recognize when they do, they're likely reaping what someone else has sown. So he's not saying this is always only ever how salvation works. As if, if there weren't at least two people involved at various times, there's no reaping. No, no. This so is far more of a general truism right. of the reaping. So everything we do is important. Yeah. The exactly. seeds, the watering, oh, yeah. the reaping. Well, and, that, and that's the part that I think that I was trying to say, I don't know how well I said it, but I, that I think is both encouraging and convicting. On the one hand, um, don't grow weary. So you, you're trying to talk to your kid about the gospel for the 50th time, and they interrupt you to ask about when they can watch TV, and you're like, oh, you know. Um, or you're talking to your neighbor or whatever. Like, dude, who, who knows? You're just building, and you're trying to build faithfully, and maybe someone else is going to get to bring that crop home. And it doesn't uh, matter. Well, it, it, it's not like if I don't see the results, it was useless. But on the other hand, think about the faithful ministry of other people, and I'm going to be distracted. And, you know, the, the thing the disciples are doing is they're not even alert and looking. I don't want you to leave this morning thinking, I need to share the gospel with every person I meet. Like that's some law. I need to be ready to. I need to be checking and looking and seeing what signs of the harvest I can get. I need to be alert to that potential and ready for that potential. That's what this is calling to. Lift up your eyes and look. They're just not seeing. It's not on their radar. Get it on your radar. I trust that if that's what you're doing, God will give you the wisdom to know what to do. It's back to Colossians. Seizing words of salt so that you know how you will know how to answer every person. 
you know. Um, and so that's the mindset we need to get in and trust that as we do that, even if we don't see an immediate crop and harvest, be content knowing someone else might, I'm, I'm entering in someone else's labor and someone else may be the one to reap. And this is a community project. And what matters is that I'm faithful. And, and then, but there will likely be times where you get to be the person who's reaping. You get to be the person who's there for salvation and delight in that. And don't take all the credit. Recognize there's likely a whole lot of other people in, in the wake behind who've, who've labored in that field. You know? Um, I, I forget to pray ahead of time for so many things. But I have a dear friend who's my age. And um, I asked God to open the door, and he did. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think sometimes, why do we forget to pray and ask him to do it? Because we get distracted by less important good things. Yeah. I mean, like I said, sometimes I suppose as the person who's like, I know I should say something. No. Usually it's, it's I should be thinking about these things. Oh, what's on Oprah? Or what's that billboard say? Or, you know, or you have a new email. Oh, wait a sec, what? And now I'm not even thinking about that. It's, it's generally distraction. It's, it's, it's paying attention to far less important things. And getting getting water is important. Right. When, when the issue of who's the Messiah is on the table, it's not so important. Right? It's not that getting water is a bad thing. It's not like she, she right. repented of her water gathering. Right. She saw there was something more important to consider, right? That's, I think, the issue for us frequently is it's not that I was, when I get convicted of this, it's not like I need to repent because I was doing some terrible thing. But I spent the whole afternoon totally not even thinking of that. I, I, I interacted with people at Fairway and people at, you know, Marshall Gas Station, never even considering might there be something I could do or say. You know, just like I'm sure the disciples did with the Samaritans in Sychar. I have no reason to think the Samaritans were, the, the disciples were rude. What we know, though, is they weren't viewing them as a potential place for ministry. I mean, that wasn't on their radar. Um, and that's, I think, what Jesus is correcting. So, yeah. Pristina. Oh, I've kind of lost some of the stuff. I <laughs> I'm sorry. But, um, one of the most important things for me when we started witnessing was not to rely on ourselves. We rely on the Holy Spirit because the, in Acts it said that the, that the Holy Spirit will give us power to become witnesses. Yeah. So that was always important. Because I remember how afraid I was in the beginning, but now it became second nature. And as most of you know, I was married to an amazing man. And it didn't matter where he was, in the ghettos of Newark, Atlanta, talking to the most dangerous person, it did not matter. And one of the keys that... Um, helped me a lot is knowing the word, having it hid in my heart. Because when I first started witnessing, I realized that somebody could talk to me and then, oh, I didn't know what to say back because I didn't know the word. But because I hid the word in my heart, the Holy Spirit brought it back up at the time that I needed. And he would always give me what to say and to who. Mm. Yeah. No, it's, isn't it remarkable? And John wants, John in, in, in John's gospel, it's emphasized when, we, when the townspeople say to the woman, it is not. Go to John 4. And again, notice what, if you think of this like a screenplay, what does John highlight or make explicit? Um, and one of the things he makes explicit is the woman's testimony had effect. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. 
And then, in case we forgot what was said five verses ago, he repeats it. He told me all that I ever did. So John is singling out that that testimony was efficacious and had a significant impact, that that brought some people to some level of faith, right? So part of, now, what they're going to say is we, we had some level of faith, and then we met him, and now we know. But what's, what's undeniable is this woman and her testimony brought some of these people to a level of faith, and her come-and-see invitation brought the whole group out. I mean, if you were to pick, like this gets back again to, if we could just find the right celebrity, get the right athlete, get the right actor, get the right politician, we just get Chuck Norris down here, you know, um, then, then people will get saved. It pleased God in his wisdom that the town Trollop was the herald of Christ. And John wants to make it explicitly clear. She gets the credit for that, right? Many believed because of her testimony, quotes it again, like let no one take from this woman her reward for her faithfulness. Her testimony was effective. And John spells it out. That's going to ring for eternity. This, this woman, many believed because of what she said. I think that's really cool. They, they didn't find the mayor. They didn't find the scholar. Yes, Alex. So would you say that she was a sower in that aspect? Yeah. yeah. So I think that's convicting hearing because, you know, she heard and she went away right away and sowed seed and then a bunch of people come out. And it's like she, I mean, whether or not she was actually a believer at the point that she was sharing the gospel, like she probably came to faith pretty soon after, right? I think, I think, I mean, we talked about this last week. I don't, I don't. Faith is at work and growing in her. The Spirit's convicting her. She's evidencing a change. Is it possible she's... It's possible. If I take her words at face value, she still has yet not fully rounded the corner on Jesus as the Messiah. It's possible she's understating it. But either either way, she's either at faith or coming to faith. It's, 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 it's taking... like She's not who she was before she met Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thinking about how many people are coming out and she's been a Christian for, you know, half a day compared to me, who's been a Christian for right. years and years and years. Like right. the fruitfulness that you see in that is convicting. I th- yeah. Well, it, it gets back to it's not human wisdom that does this. We want to strategize. And it, I can't say anything till I have every answer available. What if they ask me a question? Nobody, I mean, if they asked her more questions, she'd be like, I don't know. But you should totally come meet him. <laughs> right. I mean, Don, and then. Oh. Sorry, not Don. Who we got? Tim? Tim. Um, one of the verses that uh, I struggled with evangelism for a lot of years, and and I guess the struggle I had was screwing it up. And one of the verses that got brought to my attention early on was 1 Peter 3.15. Mm. And putting your hearts uh, on our Christ the Lord as, your holy, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In, in one sense, I think it... it it charges you and, and challenges you to to stay in the word and know the gospel so that you can talk intelligently uh, with people and that we should be living our lives that demonstrate that we do have a hope uh, in Christ so that people will ask us about it. Uh, but conversely, too, it also takes some of the pressure off us. Mm. Uh, you know, nothing we do is saving anybody. If God chooses to use me, then it is a blessing yeah to me, but thank goodness it doesn't depend on my success right. on how I evangelize 
on whether or not that person gets saved. Right. It's it's completely a work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And without the Holy Spirit's injection into that situation, they wouldn't listen to me anyway because nobody is seeking right. Christ. Christ seeks us. Yes. So, no, I, yeah, if I thought people's salvation ultimately depended on my cleverness, my wisdom, I would, I would eat myself alive second-guessing everything I ever said. I wouldn't be able to get to sleep at night. I'd be like, well, what if I said this instead of that? What if I? And so um, to quote a friend of mine, I sleep like a Calvinist. I, I try to be faithful. I want to be faithful. At the end of the day, you know, God's got to make things grow. And so I, I, I'll be judged. Paul, make, the thing that's helpful about the First Corinthians passage is he does say there's a reward for each labor based on their faithfulness, not the results, not the, not the harvest they bring in. Were you faithful? And you're watering. There may be some people who bring in very little harvest themselves, but were really faithful waterers. They're going to get the reward. Lee. Another thing that you have to, I appreciate about the woman at the well is that she didn't have a whole bunch of scripture ready to <laughs> say, oh, right. and then he said, according to blah, blah, blah. Whereas we can also tell our yeah. story. She yeah. told her story yeah. and you can say, look, and people can't argue with your story that this happened to me. This is how my life changed. And this is how kind and merciful God was. And you, be, you can't argue with it because it's yours. It's yours. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I, I'm kind of weak on scripture also, as Tim mentioned, but it's so great to be able to have that yeah. reason for why I do believe because it happened to me and it was real. Certainly. Yeah. I, I think it's, Challenging to me too, and it can be to us. She she's going back to to presumably her one of her five husbands, <laughs> the same time, same place where her five husbands or anybody yeah. else she's had an affair or, or done business with. Yeah. Um, uh, she's not letting that stop her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Yep. Okay, other thoughts, questions on this? Oh, wait, wait for the microphone, Jeremy. Our five loyal listeners regularly thank me for insisting on this point. That's right, that's right, it's going to be four. I'm going to change the subject just a what? tiny bit. Okay, okay. Uh, I know the Samaritans are half Jews yeah. or, or diluted Jews. Yeah. <clears throat> They're still considered Jews, though, when you talk about, like, uh, the, the, the gospel going to the Jews at this point, not to the Gentiles, correct? I don't think so. You, they would be considered Gentiles? I think so. So I wonder if that was, like, the... I couldn't prove that, but I don't... <clears throat> I, I would lean that way. As, as Jesus and the disciples were traveling along, they right. weren't considering going to those people and... and, and gospelizing them right. because they're Gentiles right. and that, that part of the ministry hasn't, hadn't been opened up yet. Yeah. They, they may, they, it's to put them in the best light. It just hadn't occurred to them that the ministry they're doing was for anyone outside of Israel. That may, I mean, it could be as simple as that. They just had never even thought, no, we're, this is the Jewish Messiah and the Messiah is coming. We got to talk to the Jewish people. And we're on our way to Galilee, the Jewish place. And, yeah, no, that could that entirely could be it. The re, the reason why I say that we'll we'll hit this next week, but this is one of the few place few places. NIV bungles the next verse, next week's verse. There's a critical word that's in the Greek text that the NIV flattens because it's awkward. 
But I, here's why I don't think the, the Samaritans are Jews. So look at, uh, look at verse 43. They asked him to stay. After two days, he departed for Galilee. Why did he depart for Galilee? For, NIV says, what? Who's got the NIV? Now. now. No causality there. For, it's haughty in Greek. That since because is a causal relationship. He did this because of this. Why did Jesus not stay longer? They wanted him to stay. He only stayed two days. Why? For, he himself had testified a prophet has no honor except in his hometown. So, when he came to Galilee, right? He left because he needed to fulfill what he said, that he was going to get rejected, and he wasn't getting rejected by these Samaritans. <laughs> what a striking, subtle rebuke to the Jews. I came to be crucified, and these Samaritans aren't going to crucify me, so if I need to get crucified, I need to go back to Galilee. It's like Jonah and Nineveh, like God saving Nineveh and... Yeah. and not giving Jonah what he wanted. And so in the prologue, he came to his own or his own people, and his own people did not receive him. So I think given how John sets that up in the prologue and the striking, stinging contrast of the Samaritans with Galilee, the, the Samaritans are the foil against Israel. You know, um, not that all the Samaritans universally re- received Jesus in Luke 9. When he comes down from the mountain, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem and he goes to the Samaritan town. And when they learn, he's at the Jerusalem, they don't like him because that's the old... Dispute. Oh, our place isn't good enough. But this town, this town, um, did believe. And so, in John's framing, and the way he that that's good, he didn't stay with them. Why? Because he had said a prophet's not without honor except in his own town. And so he had to go and get rejected somewhere else. And in the intro, in in chapter one, verse. Um, 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Well, if if the if the Samaritans are his own people, that kind of... So I think the way John's framing it is the Samaritans are not part of that own people. They're the, they're the foil and the contrast to the reception that his own people gave him. Um, that would be my, my understanding. I just try to... You know, I, I have the tendency when I see the, the bad guys in the story, yeah. not, that the, not that the disciples were the yeah. bad guys necessarily, but yeah. my tendency is to just vilify them. And I, yeah. try, to, I try to come up with reasons why... You know they were what their actions were reasonable or whatever, even sinful, sure, wrong, but but well, Jesus, the same things that I would have done at the same situation. And and the tone of Jesus' correction isn't a sharp rebuke to them. I mean, so I like the idea that he's broadening their horizons. They hadn't even considered this, and it's less. Why didn't you know? I mean, because he can be Jesus can be sharp when he wants to be. Are you the teacher of Israel? You don't know these things. Like that had to sting a little bit to Nicodemus. So here, open your eyes. It's more of an invitation. It's more of, I, I like to think it's more of expanding their, what their conceptions are. Um, and, and You're thinking too small. Yeah, no. And so it's less like you idiots, you knuckleheads, and rather, guys, open your eyes. Look and see what's in front of you. Don't you I just love the bit. There's a herd of people coming. At, look, the field's white for harvest. Um, even now, the, the, the harvester is receiving wages. Like, let's get to work. Um, and we don't even know what they did. Like, it's just, what, what, so what they do? Did they hear that? Did they receive the exhortation? Did they, don't know. Uh, <laughs> which I think is in part, uh, authorially, a way of sort of like, what are you to do with that? Like, it's kind of the way Jonah's left. How does Jonah respond to God's buke? 
we don't know. Which kind of then leaves that in your lap. How, how are you going to deal with the end of Jonah? You know, like, <laughs> it just kind of hangs there. Okay. <laughs> and so... You just don't teach that part. <laughs> <laughs> yep. No, it just ends with God's question. You pity this vine. Should I not have pity on Nineveh with so many people and so many livestock? The end. Right? No, and I, and I think it leaves the question in the reader's lap of like, yeah, should we? Shouldn't I? What am I going to do? <laughs> like, what did Jonah do with it? No, no, he's, he's, off, he's, he's off the stage now. The question is left in your lap. Okay, cool. Um, I kind of feel that same way here. But, yeah. Okay, 10 minutes. Anything else? Other people? Other questions? Other things? Oh, in the back, Eric. Um, at this point... To a certain extent, are the disciples themselves still looking for the warrior Messiah that's going to kick out the Romans and yes. punish the unjust like the Samaritans? Yes. And is that partly why it didn't occur to them to preach to the Samaritans? Because they are part of the wicked who are going to be punished? Po possibly. And Jesus teaching to them on that line is less correcting that expectation and more there's other things the Messiah is going to do. I mean, so even in Acts 1, will you at this time now reinstate the kingdom of Israel? Like, they, they, they haven't stopped looking for a Messiah who's going to be a geopolitical savior. They, they haven't stopped doing that. Um, Peter cutting off Malchus's ear. He's ready to fight for the, for the Messiah. And so the thought, like, no, no, the Messiah's, the Messiah's going down in the first round. He's, he's getting crucified. Um, that's the next piece of the plot. They, they don't have their heads wrapped around that one. Jesus tells Peter, I'm going to be, the son of man's going to be delivered over. Never, far be it from you. Like, you're the Messiah, and the disciples come to believe that, and they come to believe in John 6. I love this. We, we sing the song, um, show us Christ, where else can we go? You are the words of eternal life. They didn't fathom what Jesus meant by eating his flesh and drinking his blood when he turns to them and says, what, do you, do you want to leave too? Peter just doesn't say, no, I that was very, very deep irony and simile and metaphor, and it was brilliant. I, I think Peter doesn't have a sausage of an idea of what that meant. But you alone are the words of life, so where am I going to go? Like, <laughs> right. So, I, and I think that's fine. Like, Peter and the disciples have a lot of misunderstandings and mis-expectation. Mis Mother will tell me later if that's right. Um, but yeah, so yeah, their, their expectations of the Messiah, especially the suffering aspect, are huge. Well, then you've got in the other gospel, um, the sons of the sons of Zebedee, right? That Jesus Jesus named the sons of thunder. They want to call fire down from heaven on a Samaritan village that rejected Jesus. So we know from the other gospels that there is some of that animosity. Those dirty Samaritans had the cheek to disrespect you. Can we call down fire from heaven, <laughs> guys? Step down, you know, back down, guys. So, yeah, all, all that's in play. But in John's gospel, we haven't seen that yet. But from the other gospels and harmonizing, oh, yeah, there's a whole lot of misunderstandings and a whole lot of um, correction. I mean, they, they've, as I harmonize the gospels, we haven't got to where Mark begins yet. So Mark begins with, I think, in 117, when Jesus learned that John the Baptist had been arrested, he came into Galilee preaching the time is fulfilled, repent and believe the gospel. He's on his way to Galilee right now. I think that's where this is lining up. So they haven't even been vocationally called yet. They're going to leave and go back to their day jobs. I mean, so this is more like taking a month off from work to travel with Jesus and less 
be a vocational full-time commissioned apostle. That they're not there yet. These are they're they're maybe it's even the the four months thing. Maybe it's in between harvest and planting and harvest, and they got a couple months they can travel to Jesus, but they got to get. Well, we know Peter's a fisherman, but but in Luke five, Jesus calls Peter from his boat, and this is before that. So so yeah, they're 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 freshmen in the class of Jesus so far. I mean, they're they're really starting the entry level stuff. Fair enough. Yeah. Five minutes. We got one or two more questions. Anything else? Okay. So let me um, let me go to one last thing then. Um, so let me let me flip let me flip the thing around though. In what I find convicting, we we sit at this point in time. Um, where does he say it? Things into which angels long to look. Is that First Peter or Second Peter? Hold on, let me look up in my phone here. I got a convicting point. Give me a First Peter. Angels long. I'll just find it there. Angels long. Yeah, First Peter one. Thank you. Yeah, go to First Peter one. Um. Um, let's start verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that is to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced, so that to you... Through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let me let me read that last thing because I must have missed a word. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So there's this long line of God preparing a plan of salvation. And, it, and there's, if you want to really look at how many people have been working in this vineyard, you've got Enoch, you've got Abel, you've got the whole Hebrews 11, right? We've got the such a company of witnesses and they've all planted and watered and they don't get to see the promise come to fruition. And so, so much so that Peter can say they're really serving us. We, we get to see it happen and fulfill. And they've been faithful. Think of like now, let me switch to a marathon metaphor and they've passed the baton, they pass and they've been faithful and then they pass it to us. And we got Bibles and smartphones and Greek New Testaments, and we've got we we've got the fullness arrived, the shadows done away with. Like, okay, guys, bring it home. And like, hold on, I got, I got a text message. Hold on, you know, like the 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 irony and the potential for like, good grief, we could really fail. And how many people before us are we failing on the foundation they've built? I don't want that. I mean, I don't want to guilt you into this, but there's a flip side to the privilege, and the privilege is the responsibility. And the flip side is, you know, <laughs> there is this massively long line of people who've labored faithfully. You can even read in recent church history, Tyndale, Wycliffe, people who've been burned at the stake, John Huss, like all these people laboring, pouring, planting. And then, you know, we just get, just, we forgot about it. Yeah, I lost track of it. Like, imagine telling... Somebody who like got burned at the stake, 
you never got around to sharing the gospel because you were distracted. We've entered into their labor. You've entered into John Huss's labor, Wycliffe's labor, Moses' labor. You have. The question is, what are we going to do having entered it? There's no question about whether we will enter it. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you've entered it. Now the question is, what are you going to do in the vineyard? Okay. And on that note, we'll call it a day. God bless. Godspeed. Good day.